right. Good morning, RGC. So good to see everyone this morning. Thanks for coming to Core Seminars. Today's Core Seminar is continuation of our Church History Core Seminar. Today we're going to be talking about the development of Scripture, worship, and leadership in the early church. Just as a reminder, this is a 13-week uh, Core Seminar on Church History that Eric Larson and I are kind of co-teaching. Um, and again, we're specifically focusing on around the first 300 years of church history uh, in our class today. So before we start, why don't you join me in a brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for what you have done, what you are doing today, and what you have in store for us in the future. Father, we ask you to bless our time this morning. May it be educational and edifying to those who hear it as we learn about your faithfulness to us through the church. Please bless Pastor Vijay as he gives the preached word this morning, and bless our church leaders as they love and care for your chosen flock. Father, we know that our world is chaotic, it's politically turbulent, and that while not maybe directly here in Georgia, in a very clear ways, we are persecuted as Christians, but we do know that across the globe, others are directly persecuted as Christians. Hear our prayers, Father, of protections for those in Christ who are in need. In particular, this morning I ask for those in Ukraine. Father, we thank you in all things, but we thank you most for the work done through your sending of your Son to die on the cross for the salvation of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next slide, please. So as I mentioned, uh, I'm picking up... Uh, pretty much roughly covering the same time frame that Eric covered last week from around A.D. 33 to roughly A.D. 300. You can see on the slide here we have a, a good timeline of uh, church history starting from the Pentecost to, to today. Um, but what I'm going to be covering again is those first 300 years. And while Eric last week covered the externalities that kind of impacted the growth of the gospel in the early church, uh, what I'm covering today is more of the internal working aspects of what the early church looked like. Our focus will be pointing out really some familiar doctrines that we'll recognize as things that we do here at RGC, practices of worship that we engage in regularly. Additionally, I think our time today uh, will describe a lot of steps and a few missteps uh, taken by early leaders in developing the ways that we as Christians meet in worship and we worship our Lord and Savior. So last week, Eric talked about uh, several key features, and some of whom we'll actually talk a little bit about today. One of them, you may recognize the name from last week, was a, a Roman governor called Pliny the Younger. And in a revealing correspondence between Pliny the Younger and the Roman emperor at the time, who, was, who were directly involved in persecuting early Christians, uh, Pliny the Younger described Christians interestingly, and let me quote him how he described them. Quote, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang an anthem to Christ as God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to commit any wicked deed, but to abstain from all fraud, theft, adultery, never breaking their word or denying a trust when called upon to honor it, end quote. So I think we, as we can see, even from those early first few decades or, or 100 years of church uh, Christians living out the Christian life, Christians were identifiable how they met, how they worshipped, how they interacted with each other, and how the fruit of their faith through good works was evident, even to those who meant to do them harm. May the same be observed of Christians today. Today's class will clearly focus on the canonization, a big word, but the, 
the gelling, if you will, of scriptures into the Bible that we recognize today. We'll discover how the early church gathered to worship and how the word was preached. We'll discuss the ordinances of baptism and communion and the ways in which key leaders were used to bring about the important work of growing and spreading the gospel uh, across the globe. I think what was clear for me after Eric's class last week, and what I hope that you'll see somewhat in our class today, is that one really clearly defining attribute of this time in the early church was trials. Quite fittingly, as BJ is preaching through James now, this is also made abundantly clear in the epistles. These were trying times. Times that were uncertain and marked by triumphant periods of growth, but also terrifying periods of persecution, as the young church was battered about through clear times of division and times when they were brought together in unity. However, I think uh, the biggest takeaway and the clearly most defining attribute of this time is the Lord's faithfulness. In the midst of these confusions and challenges, the Lord proclaimed his word and he preserved his people. Next slide, please. So, like I mentioned, we're going to start with talking about the canonization of Scripture. Canon being a a, a Greek word, meaning rule or standard. And with it, Christians describe the standard books of the Bible, which provide the final rule and authority of our faith. In many, many ways, the most interesting aspect about the canonization of Scripture was actually how early the church reached practical agreement on which books would be included, and how little dissension emerged. Placing authority within the Word of God was not a new concept to early Jewish Christians. Uh, They held to the Torah, which was clearly the authoritative Word of God penned by Moses. What was a topic of some question as the church grew, however, was which writings should follow the Old Testament and be included in the canon. So most Christians immediately accepted the writings of the apostles as the authoritative and inspired Word of God. And even within the Bible, in 2 Peter 3, verse 16, The the Apostle Peter recognizes Paul's writing and calls them explicitly Scripture. Early Christians also realized and recognized that the four Gospels, giving truthful accounts of Jesus' ministry, and by the end of the second century, the church had in practice a generalized collection of New Testament Scriptures, including the Gospels, the Acts, and Paul's letters. And by as early as 100 A.D., writings of Clement of Rome, and we'll discuss Clement of Rome in, in a little bit, His writings already had a deep familiarity with most of the books of the New Testament as we would know it today. Uh, And definitively, by A.D. 367, uh, some letters written by Anathiasaeus, I believe that's how you say his name correctly, he listed all 27 books of the New Testament. So really, within a period of about 270 years, the New Testament as we would recognize it today was, was completely affirmed and developed. So sometimes it takes external threats and challenges to kind of force Christians to clarify and defend our beliefs. And canonization of the scriptures, really, there was no exception there. In the mid to second century, a heretic in Rome named Marcion began attracting followers to his false teachings. And he tried to kind of lead the canonization of scripture in a very different path. So Marcion argued that two different gods existed. First, an evil god of the Old Testament who created a miserable world who was petty, harsh, cruel. Secondly, Marcion believed that there was an an additional God, a God of the New Testament, who was kind, loving, and had sent Jesus to earth. Interestingly enough, as an aside, he thought he sent him as a man and not as a baby. But anyway, he sought sought to bring Jesus back, uh, back, he sought to bring Jesus to bring Christians back to a spiritual world. 
This probably doesn't sound all that different from things that we might hear in today's culture. Have you ever heard a non-Christian friend complain that the God of the Old Testament is judgmental, is harsh, is jealous, and that the God of the New Testament is nothing but love? So this is not a new uh, phenomenon, and not surprisingly, even back then, uh, Marcion, he, he had hatred for the Old Testament because of this, this evil God in his, his opinion. But additionally, he also hated the Jews. Uh, so when he decided to form his own Bible and his own canon, he actually rejected the entirety of the Old Testament as well as most of the New Testament. And the reason for that was the authors of those books that were starting to form as New Testament canon, you know, those were written by Jews, and he believed that their quote-unquote Jewishness had contaminated the books written by those Jewish apostles. Early Christians did the right thing. They rightfully condemned Marcion for his heresy. But challenges such as his and others forced the church to make really difficult and hard decisions about which scripture that it was using and affirming the scripture that it had in practice. So the church developed a simple set of standards for inspiration. The document had to have been written by the apostles or a close friend of the apostles. It had to agree with the faith and doctrine acknowledged in the undoubted letters of the apostles. And it had to be functioning as scripture widely in practice within the church. So while the vast majority of the New Testament gained early and wide acceptance, there were some additional, uh, maybe not quite heretical, but questionable uh, challenges that arose. So one of those is known as pseudodigrapha, which is fake writing. It was common, actually, in the day. And, and what this was comprised of is when, when an unknown author would pen some work within the church, they would then a- attribute the name of an apostle to it, hoping to gain credibility for the writing. So in the early church, so-called gospels of Thomas, Mary, Barnabas, and believe it or not, even Jesus himself circulated through the churches as this pseudodigrapha. Hebrews also, interestingly enough, faced some challenge because of its uh, questionable authorship, or uncertain authorship, I should say, but ultimately was accepted because of its evident apostolicity. Apostolicity, that's a hard word. (laughs) There you go. Written by an apostle. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. So the takeaway here really is that when you read your Bible today, don't take it lightly. As BJ has preached in the past, and I'll quote him, we can just be stupidly certain and confident in the reliability of the canonized Bible. Even as some would claim, uh, we don't have the original copies of it. What we do have is an incredible number of replications that circled within this early church, and even liberal academics would attest that so much of those early documents match additional copies that it's evidence of the veracity of the text. And further, we can surely read it with confidence in that God has spoken, that he revealed himself to us in the scriptures, and that we read the same Bible as handed down by the first apostles of the church. Next slide, please. So since we've talked about what compromised the early Christian canon or Bible, let's talk about the practice of early Christian gatherings. Uh, It's no surprise that after Jesus ascended into heaven, Christians began to meet together for times of teaching and praise. During the earliest decades of the faith, many believers still worshipped in the Jewish temple and observed the Sabbath. In addition, the Bible indicates that Christians also began to meet in private homes. We would see some familiarity there. Like that of Priscilla and Aquila in Romans 16, verses 3 through 5. Many of these meetings were likely held in secrecy, especially during the times of the most intense persecution of the Christian faith. 
It wasn't really until the late second and early third centuries that Christians started erecting actual purpose-built buildings and uh, dedicating them for the sole use of church worship. So Christians uh, met on the first day of the week. This was, of course, in celebration of the fact that the day after the Jewish Sabbath, Jesus had risen from the dead. And within seven years, this first day of the week had become to be known uh, throughout the, the world as the Lord's Day. John also referred to it when he was exiled in the Isle of Patmos in Revelation 1.10 as the Lord's Day. Early Christians were well aware of their ties to Judaism, and as a result, their worship patterns, at least early on and, and as they developed, tended to uh, become a familiar model and, and look a lot similar to what the worship in synagogues would have uh, looked like in that time. And this, of course, included preaching. Next slide, please. The preaching of the early church would include prayer, singing of hymns, psalms, and Bible reading. And then those were really consistent parts of early Christian worship. Apostolic letters, um, many of which came to form the canon, as we talked about earlier, would be read when they were available. But until the New Testament fully took form uh, in the mid to second century, most of the scripture reading was teaching from the Old Testament. Justin Martyr, uh, in around the year 8150, wrote, and I quote, And on this day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read, as long as time permits. And then, when the reader has ceased, the president, the pastor, uh, verbally instructs and exhorts in the imitation of these good things. So the quality of the preaching eh, was probably a little mixed. Uh, in Clement's writings, and don't worry, I haven't forgot to tell you about Clement, uh, he gives us a really good idea early on of what Christian preaching was like. What we can derive from his writings is that it was faithful to God's word, but it likely wasn't as expositionally refined as we would come to see you know, during and after the Reformation, and certainly not near the level of preaching that we would get here at RGC on any given Sunday morning. Next slide, please. So early Christians practiced two ordinances as commanded by the Lord Jesus, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we'll look at both uh, this morning. So interestingly enough, the early Christian church, church took baptism very, very seriously. Uh, quite often, they would require intensive study and preparation before a believer could be baptized, and usually required that bapti baptism be overseen, if not directly administered, by an elder or a bishop, uh, a leader of the church. Sometimes the time between professing faith and the actual act of baptism could be up to two years long. And this was kind of purposeful. The reasoning for this was in part there was so much persecution from without, with, outside the church that there was fear of uh, admitting people into the, the gathering, into the body, uh, who, who weren't very fast and convicted in their beliefs. So they were surrounded by a world hostile to their beliefs, and they needed to keep their faith and community pure. So to make sure any new members clearly understood the gospel, they, they mediated that or required that, that period of time between profession of faith and baptism. And we see this explained, uh, at least the, uh, the formal process of baptism, explained in early church writings. Uh, there's a collection of writings called the Didache, which is an anonymous mammal, manual of church practices from the early 2nd century. On baptism, it recorded the following instructions. And as I read this, think about the way that we here at RGC do baptisms now. Quote-unquote. This is how to baptize. Give public instruction on all these points, and then baptize in running water, saying in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you do not have running water, 
baptize in some other. If you cannot in cold, then in warm. If you have neither, then pour water on the head three times and say, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before the baptism, moreover, the one who baptizes and the one being baptized must fast and any others who can. So, uh, baptism actually became a bit of a point of dissension uh, in the early church. Two aspects seem to have divided them. The first is whether infants should be baptized, and the second would be if the act of baptism in and of itself was regenerative. So the first recorded mention of infant baptism comes in about A.D. 200, and it came from the pen of Tertullian, who, or Tertullian, who was actually condemning the practice. By about A.D. 250 or so, church leaders then wrote in defense of the practice of paedobaptism. And it became more and more prevalent in the 4th and 5th centuries. Additionally, as to what baptism actually accomplishes, some early church leaders believed baptism, as I mentioned, had specific salvific or regenerative uh, benefits through the act of baptism in and of itself. And this actually would actually remove uh, sin and bring salvation for the person being baptized. Others, and, and as we would hold to, true in RGC today, held to a more biblical view, viewing that baptism serves as merely an outward sign and seal of an inward reality, and that our faith and new birth exists in Christ. Next slide, please. The other ordinance practiced by the early church was the Lord's Supper, uh, or communion as others know it. One of the fathers of the early church, Justin Martyr, wrote in about A.D. 150 in his uh, writings called the First Apology. It gave a detailed account of early Christian gatherings, including the Lord's Supper. Justin recorded the Lord's Supper as a memorial of the Passion of Christ, and he wrote, and I quote, and again, as I read this, think about the way we, we engage in the Lord's Supper here at our RGC today. At the end of our prayers, we greet one another with a kiss. Then the president of the brethren is brought a bread and a cup of wine mixed with water. He takes them and offers up praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. He gives thanks at considerable length for our being counted worthy to receive these things at his hands. When he's concluded the prayers and thanksgivings, all the people present express their joyful assent by saying, Amen. Then those we call deacons give to each of those present the bread and the wine mixed with water, over which the thanksgiving was pronounced. And they carry away a portion to those who are absent. We call this food the Eucharist. Now, in most cases, the first part of the scripture was open to anyone, including the times of scripture reading, of prayer, of singing, exhortation, but uh, early writing clearly indicates that the second part, the Lord's Supper, was reserved for those who were, uh, were baptized believers in Christ. So this merits our reflection. These ordinances strengthen not only our faith in Christ, but also our unity with the believers today, but also with the universal church through the ages. When we receive baptism or when we partake at the Lord's table, we join by faith not only with our brothers and sisters here at RGC, but with the millions of Christians who've gone before us in confessing together one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Next slide, please. So now that we've seen how the scriptures worked and how early Christian worship worked, let's talk a little bit about who led and how the, the leadership structure of this early church looked. So though the Lord is the ultimate head through Jesus of the church, he also instituted human leaders from the very beginning. Paul and the other apostles were careful to appoint officers in every church that they planted. 
So by the middle of the first century, the New Testament tells us that the church had essentially two offices, the first being deacons and the other being elders or overseers. Now at first, each congregation, so each church, each body of believers had uh, its own overseers or elders, uh, sometimes referred to as bishops. But as the church began began to grow, uh, what happened was that the bishops weren't able to keep up with the needs and responsibilities of these large scores of people within their uh, individual churches. So instead, the bishops became leaders over thousands of people and perhaps scores of congregations within a single city. But what they did was they appointed presbyters or priests to assist the, assist the bishop in his duties at any one specific smaller gathering of the body. All of the churches of a city were under the care of the bishop. And in Rome, for example, the bishop performed all baptisms and personally blessed all of the bread and the wine that would be used for the Eucharist in which the presbyters would then carry from the bishop to their local uh, congregations scattered throughout the city. The bishops were also solely responsible for the finances of the church, and uh, as we would come to see in church history, this actually led to all manner of scandal and abuse. So in theory, all all bishops uh, were equal, but in practice, those over larger cities uh, generally exerted more and more influence upon the young church. So the mother church in Jerusalem was originally the primacy, or the, the most, uh, most influential church within the early church, uh, larger church. When the Romans destroyed it, that certainly changed the game. Uh, Rome then became uh, the, so the center of authority as it shifted west, as, long as, as well as large churches in Alexandria, Antioch, and Carthage. But very, very early in the history of Christianity, which is, and it's likely influenced by both uh, Peter and Paul's martyrdom within the city of Rome, Rome certainly became the preeminent church in the empire. Of course, this doesn't mean that the second century bishops of Rome uh, had the expansive and infallible supervisory functions that later bishops would assert within what we know as the Roman Catholic Church, but it was clear that the seeds of overarching primacy were sown really early on within the first couple hundred years of the church in in making Rome the seat of of, uh, influence. I will say Rome's supremacy didn't go unquestioned, however, and though the formal split between the West and the East, so between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, wouldn't happen until the 11th century, several hundred years later, raw power disputes were occurring or as early as the second century. So a perfect example would be uh, Victor, of Bish- the Victor, a bishop of Rome at around A.D. 189 to 199. He actually threatened to excommunicate the Eastern churches in Asia Minor because they disagreed with him on the date for Easter. Even this early, the Eastern church, which emphasized the Greek language and a more mystical understanding of the faith, began to distinguish themselves from the West, which emphasized Latin and a more rational approach to the faith. So some of these differences that we've seen, whether it be on uh, the ordinance of baptism or church leadership or, you know, disputes between this growing rift between East and West, they probably raise questions for you as to why parts of the church went wrong so early. And there are certainly a few reasons. But first, I'd like us all to remember that only Christ is infallible. The church uh, is led by Christians and Christians make mistakes. So even we see in the New Testament, we see examples of this, right? So as Paul uh, tells in Galatians chapter 2, he had to rebuke the apostle Peter for uh, potential legalism. Secondly, the early church did not always have that clear guidance of Scripture that we benefit from today. 
because of a, several reasons. One, the, the canon hadn't completely formed. Also, there were a limited number of copies of the books that would be included in Scripture. Additionally, literacy was just much more limited. And, and lastly, um, many parts of the culture were pretty pervasive and influential in this early church. So the intellectualism, the spiritualism, and the morality, you know, all, all three of those aspects really had negative impacts, impacts on this growing faith. And as the early Christians were the first to wrestle with these problems, we can probably appreciate it because we still wrestle with a lot of these same issues today uh, as, as modern-day Christians. So let's, let's look specifically at individual church fathers. Next slide, please. As I mentioned in the, in the intro, thankfully the Lord was faithful uh, to the church, even through these really difficult times, and he was faithful in one way by rising up church leaders to follow the apostles before them. So because of the tremendous influence they would exert on the development of doctrine and practice in the church, these men were called fathers, and we'll take a brief look at some of the most important of them, maybe two or three uh, of the earliest known as apostolic fathers, and then we'll also talk about some apologetic fathers as well. Next slide. So let's start with the apostolic fathers. Finally, we get to Clement of Rome. I told you we would talk a little bit about him. He was the bishop of the Church of Rome toward the end of the first and beginning of the second century. There was a Clement mentioned in Philippians, and it could be him. Uh, and Tertullian records that he knew Peter, uh, but this isn't absolutely certain. He may have been the immediate successor of Paul in Rome, but it's more likely that he was the third or the fourth uh, bishop to sit in that seat. Another apostolic father was Ignatius. Uh, he was the bishop in the church of Antioch in the early 2nd century. He probably knew John. Roman authorities under Emperor Tarjan captured Igna Ignatius and brought him to Rome. What little survives about his life is contained in seven letters that he wrote to various churches during his long journey to Rome for his eventual martyrdom. And another apostolic father that we talked about and Eric talked about last week uh, is Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was the bishop of the church at Smyrna. Polycarp had been a disciple of the Apostle John, and he wrote several letters, but only his uh, epistle to Philippians remains. So the story of his martyrdom, which Eric read last week, was actually written by his first church, uh, and is one of the earliest accounts of Christian martyrdom that we have in text. Next slide, please. Apologetic fathers. So we're going to talk a little bit, uh, and, and you may remember, or hopefully you remember, uh, our last course uh, seminar series was on apologetics. So apologetics is not uh, certainly not a new development. The need to defend the faith has existed since, the, uh, since our faith. Uh, so there were some really key leaders early on in the early church that led this apologetic mission. Many church fathers in the, in the second and third century, they really actually focused on battling the intellectual challenges facing Christianity around them. They were convinced that their beliefs could prevail against the prevailing philosophy of the day, and they became known as apologists. A non-inclusive list of these include Justin Martyr, uh, Arrhenius, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Cyprian of Carthage, and Origen, and we'll talk about a few of them this morning, but there are, there are many. So Christianity was born into a world obsessed with ideas, right, in the spiritual realm. Think about the uh, gods of the Roman Empire, the gods of the Greek. Uh, it was much, much more uh, spiritual, so the description we read in Acts 17.21 of Paul in Athens really helps paint that picture, right? So he, re he wrote, Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time doing nothing other than telling or hearing of something new. 
So around these young Christians would have been Epicureans, there would have been Stoics, Platonists, Aristotelians, Gnostics, Mystics, and just about every other flavor of philosophy and religion uh, you could imagine clamoring for their attention and uh, conflicting with their beliefs. So some of these leaders stepped up to the challenge, one of them being Arrhenius. He was a prominent leader in the West, and uh, he studied under Polycarp and became bishop of the church at Lyons in Gaul, France, in around A.D. 177. He directed most of his writings against Gnosticism, uh, which a Gnostic would describe all forms of matter as evil, but all forms of the spirit as good. They also claimed to have secret knowledge or gnosis necessarily necessary to attain salvation. Another one of these apostolic, I'm sorry, apologetic fathers that we talked about was Tertullian. Again, he was the bishop of Carthage in the West. He was the first Christian to write extensively in Latin. Uh, he developed much of the language that would be used in theology even to, to this day. Uh, he was a lawyer, and his precise legal reasoning was, uh, was very impactful and influential in this time. So, for example, he was the first to use the word trinitas, or trinity, to describe the nature of God as one substance, three persons. And his, na- his masterpiece was known as the Apology, written to Roman officials arguing that Christianity should be tolerated. His, his writing also included humor, and Eric kind of referenced this joke as I, as I was doing the work for this. I kind of found this quote pretty funny. My wife disagrees with me, but we'll see what you think. His, his writing, he wrote, uh, If the Tiber rises too high or the Nile too low, the cry is always, to the, to, uh, the Christians to the lion. And Tertullian wrote, All of them to one lion? I thought that was pretty witty. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. His wise and witty church leadership, though, unfortunately did take a bit of a turn. And around A.D. 220, uh, Tertullian joined the Montanists, which is a, a group of strange, heretical, apocalyptic believers who claim to be the culmination of history. Here again, we're reminded that even the most eminent of church, uh, early church leaders was not immune from gross error. So another apologist we'll discuss is uh, Titius Flavius Clemens, or Clement of Alexandria, and I make the distinction because there's a lot of Clements, so I don't want you to confuse it with Clemens of Rome. Uh, he sought to persuade Christians of the wisdom of Greek philosophy and to persuade the philosophers the truth of Christianity. So he basically, you know, he had a war on two fronts. It led him, unfortunately, to invent maybe a middle ground in this notion of purgatory as a place to cleanse the soul. And that idea that we would all recognize took for, uh, it was adopted and took hold in the Roman Catholic Church believings. Clement read scripture as more of an allegorical body of work instead of a liter, uh, literal uh, words of God, which accounted for some of his weaknesses and his thought. He served as the Bishop of Alexandria until AD 202, when he was forced to plea the persecution that was erupting in the city. Following him was a region, a disciple of his, And he was a towering figure in the history of the church. So he became the bishop of Alexandria after the persecution there passed. He was born in about uh, 185, and he he proved himself to be this brilliant scholar in terms of church writings. And he was the most prolific church writer uh, in the early church. Uh, Many would probably argue even today. Uh, He wrote over 2,000 works. Uh, His greatest work... um, and scholarship of the early church was known as the haplexa, and he made the first effort to present fundamental doctrines of Christianity in a systematic theology uh, that we would recognize today. He made great attempts to present the truths of Christianity in the language of the prevailing Platonic philosophy of the day. 
So finally, Cyprian of Carthage, uh, he was another apologetic father, uh, and he was an eminent Western churchman. He already was a wealthy and influential citizen of Carthage when he became a Christian in AD 246. Cyprian came to place a great emphasis on the unity and authority of the church. He was the first to describe the office of the bishop of Rome as the chair of Peter, thus connecting the apostolic authority within the primacy of the Roman church and laying the foundation for the modern papacy and the structure of the Roman Catholic Church as we would recognize today. Cyprian died as a martyr in AD 258. So to wrap a few things up this morning and have some time left over for brief questions, uh, I hope we can all see that the Lord's faithfulness to these first few hundred years of the church was, was abounding. Christ promised in John 14, 18 that I will not leave you as orphans. He gave us his word in the scriptures, his body in the church, and his spirit through baptism and communion. However, errors and divisions in the early church demonstrated that we must not always place our faith I'm sorry, that we must always place our faith in Christ and not in other Christians. Yet, we should realize the importance of the corporate body to preserve biblical truth, and we should praise God for his providence in guiding the church through such challenges. So, happy to entertain questions. What questions might we have? Yes, so there is a bit of an overlap. I didn't necessarily talk. So in your handout, you will see a brief timeline on the church on the back here. We will, we will try and uh, keep you know, sliding this snapshot of a timeline forward as we move so you can kind of settle yourself where we are in a point in time in history. So Council of Nicaea, you'll see 325 on the back of the handout here. We'll start getting to some of those councils in the next couple of sessions. Right, right. So from what I can tell is there was a lot of writing exchange between the churches. Uh, I don't know if that's exactly where decisions were made. I'd have to do some research and confirm, but maybe some of our, uh, our, our elders could chime in with answers there. <laughs> Phone a friend. I'm a, I'll look into it and I'll get back to you, Josiah. Other questions? Okay, uh, I'm just say uh, happy to entertain any questions that might come up. I, uh, my wife is the history major in our house. I am not. Uh, but this has been really influential and uh, impactful for me to kind of study some of this stuff when it's not necessarily my favorite subject, but it is, it is impressive. So I do encourage you, uh, even if you don't seem inclined to this, this study, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good way to kind of round off some of your reading and some of your study of the Lord. Okay, well, we're a bit early, but I will uh, I'll close this up, and we'll have some fellowship before church starts. Thanks, everybody.